Broadband internet is now a necessity for development, but in some areas of the state, such as Orange County, less than 20% of the residents currently have access to broadband internet. That's the lowest county rate in the state. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and on this week's Noon Edition, we'll be discussing the current state of broadband internet utilization throughout Indiana and what is being done to improve it. We'll answer your questions. You can join today's conversation by calling in at 812-855-0811 or join the conversation on Twitter. Follow us at Noon Edition. We'll be talking about this right after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU, WTIU reporter and host Joe Wren. And today we're going to be talking about broadband internet access in Indiana and uh, why it's important and how it can be delivered to more of the rural parts of the state. We have three guests, two in the studio and one by phone. The guests in the studio are Allie Orwig, Project Coordinator for Indiana Telehealth Network, and Jennifer Terrell, a professor India at Indiana University in the School of Informatics and Computing. And joining us by phone is Erin Houchin. She's a state senator from Salem. You can join us on the program at 1-812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you all for being here and taking a, an hour out of your day to talk to us about about this issue. And I would like for uh, – I'm going to ask Jennifer first if you could sort of frame this issue of – the, the need for, for faster internet speeds and broadband internet everywhere. Sure. Um, I can do that. Uh, I will say that this is not exactly my area of expertise, but I can share what I do know with you. Um, essentially, it seems to me that the popular discourse about this is that we need to get access everywhere, and that is probably certainly true. Um, however, the conversation usually doesn't go deeper than that. Often we say there's this issue of people don't have access to broadband or people don't have access to digital devices, and we need to get them access so that they can get online and participate and be part of modern society, right? Um, but a lot of the scholarship that looks at this says that actually that um, is only a little tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Yes, we need to get people online, but actually people often are participating already in these systems, and we have to take a more critical look at how they're participating when we're thinking, how do we get people, you know, to participate in uh, contemporary society and better li their lives and things like that? So, okay. my my take will be to say, yes, let's get them internet access, but what else? But, but what else? But so, what else? Yeah. Okay. Well, Ali uh, Orwe, you're the project coordinator for Indiana Telehealth Network, so you're going to have to explain what that is. <laughs> sure. Uh, it's actually a, a program within the Indiana Rural Health Association. We're a nonprofit that works around the state um, with any doctor's offices, hospitals, clinics, um, et cetera, that help provide health to rural Hoosiers. So the telehealth network is a program which is sort of a, a go-between for these rural providers and the Healthcare Connect Fund which is a program put forth by the FCC to provide up to 65% subsidies to get broadband into these rural areas. So when you talk about into the rural areas, are you talking about you know, into the healthcare facilities or just totally? Yes, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, primarily the healthcare facilities, but often um, hospitals, schools, libraries are considered anchor institutions to bring the access to a community and then they can sort of act like a hub and spoke model where once it's already in the community other people can access it okay 
And uh, Senator Houchin is joining us from a very busy week at the State House. Senator, um, from you know the state standpoint, and you're from a small town yourself in in Indiana. Um, what is the uh, what's the priority on this? And I mean, how important is it? And where do you come in? It's certainly important to me, being from a rural area, rural area, and that was one of my top priorities when I first got elected to the General Assembly in 2014 was to take a look at this issue what are we doing um where are the the patches if you will in terms of access and um what's being done to to make sure that we get there and uh, lieutenant governor former lieutenant governor sue elsperman headed up the um broadband uh task force which made some suggestions which some of them were put into legislation that i uh, helped carry and one of those was broadband-ready communities. Um, I think that we have, um, there was a lot of talk at that time, uh, let's get broadband-ready communities. That will, uh, That is a process where uh, a community can say, we've checked all these boxes, um, signaling to providers that we're ready for deployment of broadband. And if you look at the Indiana broadband map, which came out of that, and since then, seeds have have changed, and so the map may look differently from what I'm referring to, but when we looked at the broadband map at that time, um, about 4% of the state had um, little to no access, and and the majority of that, really, if you looked at the map, was my Senate District 47. And so it certainly is important to me that that my communities don't get left behind. I I referred to it at the time as, um, you know, the, the utility of the future, that 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 when businesses are looking to uh, locate in an area, when when people are looking to move to an area, uh, broadband access is important uh, now as it is as infrastructure and and um, access to water, sewer, electricity, all of those things. And so, I'm you know this session um, still focused on the issue, maybe not as overtly, but we've had uh, with the agile network. Uh, deal kind of coming and going and and ways that we're looking at how do we get this done and I certainly agree with um, the comments that have been made about okay we get access you know what do they <laughs> how are they using it and um, my my from my perspective as a member of the General Assembly I'm always looking for any ways that we can we can get those final miles of broadband for our state, particularly in rural areas for telehealth, for education, for, you know, agriculture, and all the applications, economic development that um, expansion would bring. You know, when we talk about the lack of broadband in these rural areas, how bad is it in terms of what people are getting? Because I still can remember back in dial-up days of Internet, although it wasn't good Internet, but it was some Internet. Is that what's what's happening out in the rural areas, or do they just don't have any access at all? I think that, you know, they, they, the complaints that I hear is that if, uh, if they want to get it, it's very expensive. It's by satellite mm-hmm. or... Um, it's it's bad service. It's just not the quality speeds, and this isn't universal. I mean, I'm in a I'm in a rural county in town, you know, near town, and so I have access and I have good speeds. But when you when you get into Orange and Crawford County, um, those are areas where uh, there's just not a lot of um, a lot of access to the uh, speeds that would be required to. To make it worthwhile, and I know that telecom companies are looking at ways to do to, to granting access over cellular, and there, you know, we're the whole system of access is probably likely to evolve. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we have people that that either their obstacle is um, that it's just not um, high speed, so they can't really do much with it, or uh, it's too expensive. I wanted to uh, ask Allie Orwig about the uh, Indiana Telehealth Network. And can you just give us a, a brief explanation as to why it's so important for health care that we have access to these higher speeds all through the state? Sure. Um, well, I've, I've said before, at a risk of being overly dramatic, it's literally, for a lot of our rural areas, a matter of life and death, uh, a matter of getting the kinds of services that these areas need 
in person, it, it's just never going to happen. You're not going to attract every specialist in the world to a small rural county in southern Indiana. But through telehealth, we can have that access um, from afar. Having the speeds and capabilities and reliability to provide that kind of health care is another matter altogether. And as I'm sure everybody knows, the healthcare landscape is is constantly changing. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say bleak, but in a lot of areas, it's it's quite dicey for hospitals to even be able to continue operating as they have in the past. So to ask them to do hundreds of thousands or, or even in excess of a million dollar builds just to get the services to a rural area, uh, it's very, very difficult. The cost is huge when they're dealing with so many other barriers mm-hmm. in the healthcare industry. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there, is there a model uh, that you could point to a, a place in the state that sort of already has best practices in a rural area when it comes to telehealth? Um, we have worked with many different sites. I, I don't want to point anybody out specifically, but we have implemented, um, I'll brag on my particular area of the state a little bit. I'm from Sullivan County, which is about half an hour south of Terre Haute. And uh, working with a hospital there, there's a telestroke program that's been then put out around the state. And strokes are extremely time sensitive in nature. Being able to have somebody with a specialist online to get the TPA medications, which can literally, um, you know, prevent further damage from happening, you're talking about seconds and minutes. Uh, you don't even have time to get in a car and drive to the hospital in a rural area, let alone wait for slow speeds. So that's a really good example of, of a program that's being done well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to say that there's a best practice for everything because every hospital in every area, their needs are different. They have different kinds of populations, different pockets of uh, disease you see more often. So, um, But I would say telemental health is a big push coming up. Um, you probably also are aware that there's yeah. a massive drought of mental health providers, and we're getting ready to do a big push about having some more... Uh, telemental and telepsychiatry available. Uh, It's interesting that the senator is from Salem because we are working with many rural schools now, uh, the Indiana Rural Health Association is, to put in health clinics in the schools using telehealth. Um, We have online otoscopes and you can listen to their heart, look in their throat, look in their ears. They don't, the children don't have to leave the school. They're able to see a doctor. Mom and dad don't have to take off work to go pick the kid up and take them to the doctor's office. Uh, you're, you're not taking the kid out of school. You're not taking the parent out of work. So there are models out there that are becoming successful, but so many of them are in their infancy. Um, we've got one now in Elwood, Indiana, uh, Jeffersonville, Indiana, and we're, we're working with the Salem schools right now. So mm-hmm. there's, there's promise on the horizon. All right. Um, but there's not a lot that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Senator? Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And um, it's, it's, you know, when we're talking about those, those hub and spoke systems, that's certainly where my line of thinking has been going as a legislator is how do we get good access, for instance, to our schools? How do we incentivize that and then get the, um, you know, reach out to all the students in that particular uh, corporation. We could network schools together. Um, so I, I, I'm certainly um, aware of the, uh, intimately aware of the, the issues that rural Indiana faces in terms of telehealth and access to education. I mean, in, in rural Indiana, we can't offer uh, the curriculum that maybe a Carmel school system could offer, um, but through broadband access, we, we could offer those classes um, remotely um, over, you know, over the internet. And so, um, I'm always looking for ways to expand that. It's encouraging for me to hear that those kinds of things are are happening um, in the rural healthcare area as well. You know, I think when the senator mentioned about some broadband committee, you said you were on that as well, Allie? Yeah, I was a member of Sue Elsperman's task force. Task force, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. What were some of the things that you talked about or learned from that? Um, 
well, I was a bit shocked, honestly, uh, what coverage supposedly the state already had. You know, anecdotally, we've all driven down the road and tried to use our phones or tried to to log <laughs> on and check an email or, <laughs> heaven forbid, you try to stream something uh, on your computer in a rural area. So I was a little bit surprised how good the coverage map said it should be. So I will just echo what she said about cost is a big one, but reliability and getting the advertised speeds are are huge. So mm-hmm. um, that, that was very interesting for me. But that was a great organization. I was really, really proud to be a part of it because so many telcos came together. You know, your Comcasts, your AT&Ts were in the same room with a lot of your mom and pop um, Tell teleco providers, which doesn't happen all the time, and we all work together to really come up with some we thought great uh, ideas for the future. And those broadband ready communities were a big part of that. So, so Jennifer Terrell from the Indiana University, we talked when you when we started the program, you talked about how you know access isn't that it can't just stop with access. So, can you say more about that? What what are some of the things that need to happen after? This is all lined out. Sure. Um, that's actually, I mean, in general, a very, very complicated question. Yeah, why not? With a very, very complicated answer. You have 30 answer. seconds. No. 30 seconds. So if, no. we build off no, of, <laughs> if we build off of this idea of um, maybe there not being one particular model that works great for these hospitals, right, uh, what you're pointing to is the idea that, that context really matters and that um, – for any of these given situations, um, people, the context is absolutely key. And so the problem is that just getting the technology there isn't enough, right? So you're going to also need the specialists in the hospital setting, for example, who know how to use it, or in education, um, getting you know, uh, laptops and broadband into the hands of students is a step, but it's not the only step, right? And one of the problems is that sometimes we frame this conversation as though once we get everybody wired or wireless but connected, that this will be great and the problems will be solved. But actually, we still need the specialist that understands how the medication works. We still need teachers that can actually make use of the technologies in the classroom. Or even if we're connecting classes online, you still have, um, you would still be missing the things that teachers in person bring to students, right? Where it's not, my job as a professor is not just to deliver information, it's to teach students. And that's a much more complicated thing, mm-hmm. um, holistically. So so, uh, so it sounds like, I mean, you're, you're kind of talking my language when I think of my iPhone and the fact that I probably know how to use about 20% of right. what I have. So how do, you, how do you push that forward? I mean, in a public policy sense, or how do you, how do you uh, make sure that people are using this technology to its fullest extent? So that's... That's a really good question, um, and I'm going to borrow from a scholar that um, I love, uh, Professor Virginia Eubanks. Um, I read her work as a graduate student here, and um, she was working with uh, women in upstate New York at a YWCA. I'm going to say this properly. <laughs> it's always hard for me to remember what um, the letters. Anyway, uh, and what she found was that the policy is problematic in the sense of when you're coming from top down and you're coming from Um, legislators and other policymakers who aren't maybe always working with people in these settings, they they think that people, they think that access is an issue of technology. When actually, um, at least in the case of the people that Virginia was working with, access meant a lot more. And so these people were already participating in these systems, but they were participating in the systems in particular ways. And they were participating in systems that didn't benefit them. Right. So one of the things that we have to think about is how do we get people involved so that they can be part of the solution is her big um, insight is to say, okay, instead of thinking, what do we provide for people to pull them in? How about we talk to people and see the ways in which they're already participating in some way and the ways in which the information systems are benefiting them and the ways in which they're not? And then how do we look to them to solve what they think should be going on? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a matter of building the system to serve by talking to the people and then serving the needs of the people instead of building a system and then trying to teach them this new system. Yeah, or even better, let them build the system, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and she's working with women to do that, which is really interesting work. You know, we keep talking about the system and maybe, Senator, you want to jump in here. Uh, What's the major roadblock, though, of, of getting that system in place? Has it all come down to money and funds? 
I think that, um, and I've said this in the past, if we're waiting on, <clears throat> excuse me, if we're waiting on providers to go to these rural areas, the ROI for them, and, and what you'll hear is that it, they, they won't get a return on their investment. It's $25,000 a mile to, to do fiber. And um, so if there aren't, if the customer base isn't there, then they won't go to those areas. So if we're waiting on providers, um, we won't get um, you know, the prices down. We won't get um, accessibility increased or speeds increased. And so um, I, I think, unfortunately, yes, um, there is a money factor in that, and I think the state can play a part in that. What I would what I would um, point to is that there, there were federal dollars that came in for broadband expansion. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening with some of those federal dollars, rather than going to there are two distinctions. There's unserved areas and underserved areas. And if you don't distinguish that money uh, in that regard for broadband access needs to go to unserved areas versus underserved areas, then the money ends up going to those areas where uh, there's already access and you end up overbuilding as the providers are looking to increase their customer base. And so uh, when I when I wrote legislation for um, for instance, a study committee on how we get access to broadband um, in these rural areas. Um, I, I had to be very specific that if we're studying this, it needs to study unserved areas, not how we get it to underserved areas. So we don't have another overbuilding problem. I would um, envision that we'd have to have some kind of public-private partnership um, to get the, the job done where, where the state can help with the resources, for instance, for a school to get networked um, or a rural health care center to get uh, networked. And um, the, the, the local entity would then bid that out um, to um, a provider. So you'd have to have um, a, a partnership in that regard. We recently heard of the, uh, and this has been in the news recently, the Agile Networks deal. And, and originally I I thought, well, this will be very good. We'll have some investment in broadband, and it will help these rural areas. But uh, sometimes you get the, the um, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it probably is. And as, as legislators, as we started to sort of peel back the onion on this, this um, the deal, uh, it, it occurred to me that we were uh, incentivizing an out-of-state uh, company to come in and, and be in competition with, supported by the state, local providers such as Smithville that have already made significant investments in, in infrastructure. And so um, that is, I think, what caused the, the uh, breaks to be put on that deal. We all want to get there, uh, but we also you know, need to do this in a way that is, is um, sensitive to investments that have been made and um, uh, not... Uh, the state incentivizing and, and picking winners and losers and incentivizing one company over another. So I think for me, I would like to see, if I had my brothers, I would like to see uh, an organization like the REMCs, who already have significant infrastructure in rural areas. They're pioneers in terms of bringing electricity to rural areas when other providers wouldn't. And so I think that the REMCs uh, would be a a uh, a partner and a clear partner in being able to uh, serve their customers in rural areas and, and offer that service. All right, we're going to have to take a short break. We've hit halftime of our show. We're talking about uh, Indiana's access to um, high-speed broadband, broadband Internet, uh, particularly in rural areas. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. 
It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with Joe Wren, and today we're talking with three guests about the importance of uh, high-speed internet for rural areas of Indiana, as well as every place else. Our guests are Ali Orwig, the project coordinator with Indiana Telehealth Network, Jennifer Terrell, a professor in, at Indiana University School of Informatics and Computing, and Aaron Houchin, state senator from Salem, Indiana. You can join us by calling 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington calling area. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Joe? So I was just going to kind of piggyback off of what the senator was just talking about because uh, in Bloomington, Mayor Hamilton just signed a letter. Now, it's a letter of intent with uh, Axia, which I believe is based out of Canada, for a gigabit class broadband. But that's in the city of Bloomington. And so some of that's already going on. Of course, there's going – it's not set in stone yet as the company is looking to do some research to see if it's – if they're going to make out. And we, we, all, we, we get back to that same discussion of – who is going to make out in the long run, what all goes into, and maybe Senator, you can touch on this a little bit, uh, what goes in behind the scenes in trying to negotiate these types of deals uh, with broadband internet in cities and beyond that? I'll, inter I'll interject there and just quantify by saying I wasn't part of any of the conversations with Agile Network in right. terms of what goes on behind the scenes. So. I can't really speak to how those negotiations happen, um, and certainly having the mayor speak to that would probably be um, ideal. Uh, how does how does that process happen? Um, from from my perspective on, on a funding piece or even a legislative piece, um, I've got a bill this session that that is uh, designed to help the REMCs. Um, they have in the in the specific section of code that, that governs the REMCs, they're allowed to provide utilities. And if broadband services are not considered to be a utility, then the, the state law currently would be hampering development of broadband through the REMCs. And so from a legislative perspective, in terms of what happens behind the scenes in the, in the factory of, of uh, bill making, if you will, uh, the legislation is aimed at, at also authorizing REMCs to provide services, and they're providing other services like wastewater, et cetera. But just a simple change in the law like that can um, can help to uh, further the goal, uh, trying to get where we need to be with with broadband in these rural areas. This may this may be um, piggybacking, uh, as Joe said, a little bit on that same concept, Senator. But you know, I've heard that you know I've been listening to the conversation in Bloomington about this issue. And it's interesting because, as Ali said earlier, the utility of the future, I think Ali said that. No, well, one of you said that. Maybe all three of you said that. It was, it was me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so you yeah. said earlier, you know, that, that broadband is a utility of the future, which is essentially the same thing that Mayor John Hamilton has been saying in Bloomington. Um, but then, you know, you mentioned Smithville, and Smithville was not happy with the way the city of Bloomington went about this because Smithville has been building out particular areas, and they're doing some overbuilding to be able to provide more access to more people. But the city has signed this one you – know, or not – well, they've signed a letter of intent to bring in an outside company to provide access to everybody. The mayor has said – it's just like providing roads because any provider would be able to be on it. And I guess I'm trying to get – I'd like to get your take. I know I don't want to you know, get you into Bloomington City politics, Senator, but, <laughs> but it sounds like a – with at the Agile uh, Network, sounds like a similar situation where you, you the state, or, you know, took a different approach and said, now nah, we're not comfortable with bringing one big company in. We want the locals to provide this. I think that's certainly yeah. what what the uh, resounding uh, pushback was from from the legislators in rural areas um, that we we don't want to approach it from the standpoint of only looking at one provider and, and picking a winner, if you will. 
And I, I don't know the circumstances of the Bloomington deal, but what I can tell you in terms of the Agile deal is that there was at least some conversation that um, even though it was maybe offered to um, multiple bidders, uh, that the, the circumstances after the bid were changed um, to make it more attractive. And so if you have that circumstance where, okay, yes, you bid it out and it's a fair process and maybe Smithville did or didn't have the opportunity to bid on that, um, but if the, if the guidelines after the bid change and make it even a more attractive, maybe more people would have bid on it if they had known this from the start, um, I think that's where you could run into some trouble, uh, which is why the leg- legislators in those areas um, encouraged pushing the pause button on this um, because there was so much uh, uncertainty involving the bidding process and, and whether or not and how it changed after the fact. And would it have been different if, if a, an Indiana company would have um, been given the same uh, offer? And so I don't know the circumstances of the Bloomington uh, deal, but uh, certainly from a from my perspective, I would want that to be a, a fair and open bidding process so that we give our Indiana companies uh, ample opportunity to participate. Well, we're, we'd certainly invite anybody from the city that is listening that wants to call in and set us straight about this to do that. We're not trying to pick on the city's deal, and I know right. there, there was a there certainly was a bidding process of uh, that that they went through. They took um, they they did the. RFP process, I believe. So, All right. If you want to join the program uh, today, again, we're taking calls about broadband and broadband access, 812-855-0812 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join uh, join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I want to go back to the uh, IU School of Informatics and Computing and, mm-hmm. and talk about, um, again, this this notion that you know just building it isn't enough, and so we need to, to be able to provide um, you know access to everybody. So in your, in your research, um, what have you found you know is the best incentive? Is it that that idea of going out and visiting with people first and then building the system? Is that an incentive to get people to use this more oh, fully? Uh, I think I, I don't I don't think it's an issue of incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people have incentive. Um, I think that it's it's just a more complicated issue. So if we go back to the healthcare um, context, right? And it, you know, you Ali lays out a great um, thing for us to think about in terms of hospitals. But if you think about individuals and how they would use healthcare, right? So um, I just scheduled uh, an appointment with my doctor that I had to schedule online, and then the nurse called me and said, "Oh, hey, you can't get this procedure until you know this day because of the." you know, health insurance and yada, yada, yada. Well, I have great health insurance through IU. So for me, this all makes sense and it's easy. But someone who's in a maybe um, rural place that doesn't have access to just scheduling an appointment online, that's not maybe the only problem, right? So do they have access to health care? Can they afford um, even going and getting the procedures, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually a much more complicated issue. So it's not just that if we give them, you know, broadband and a laptop, they're going to be able to get all of their health care needs met, that's the problem. So we need to reframe the conversation. So it's not that they, certainly someone who's sick has incentives, probably, mm-hmm. we could assume, right, that they're going to want to get the best care that they can. But there could be other barriers to getting that care be- beyond access to broadband, is what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. I'll actually just build uh-huh. on that, too. Um, one thing that we're already supposing when we talk about healthcare is we're just talking about, hey, you're already sick and you need to go to see the doctor or you need to go to the hospital. And we're moving more and more all the time. Um, I don't know how many people in here have a, a Fitbit or a, a wearable or something. I know oh, I've got one. And that's mm-hmm. just a, a very small example. But being able to digitally track um, your blood sugar, your weight, uh, people with chronic heart problems, um, to keep them well by having devices in their home that can link up with reasonable speeds to a health coach somewhere perhaps that can keep them, that can monitor them, that can help them stay healthy, saves them money, saves the hospitals money, uh, keeps people out of the emergency room. I mean, that, I think that really kind of builds on what you're saying, like how people want to use it. It's not even you need it because you're already in a situation. It's helping you improve your life just in general. And that absolutely can happen, you know, in that in that case. There are other times when people maybe will resist that 
because they already have been monitored in certain ways. So research shows, for example, um, <clears throat> people who are um, who are on a welfare system, for example, for food stamps and things like that, um, are pretty hesitant to trust the technological systems because they get um, they feel surveilled, you know, they, they feel like they're under surveillance. They, uh, the systems put a barrier between them and another human that gives them access to these things. And so sometimes when you've already been in a system that doesn't treat you well because of these different technologies and being monitored that way, they're going to resist using something like an activity tracker because they associate it with other things. Sure. Right? sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing we haven't mentioned uh, is that a large portion of the rural population is considered elderly. They didn't grow up with the technology that we have, and that's a major barrier, not necessarily to access, but to adoption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's absolutely true. Um, we had a legislation that would have put all uh, notices online uh, instead of in the newspaper last mm-hmm. session, and um, I was adamant that we can't we can't take that step when we don't have we have people that don't have access and the elderly population very much would rely on uh, still on the newspapers and um, the hard copy newspapers and so those are things in terms of a policy perspective that we have to consider. We at the newspapers appreciate your support. <laughs> uh, we have a phone call from Mike and Seymour. Mike, uh, good afternoon. Mm-hmm. Go right ahead. Um, I was a broadband technician for a cable company in Ohio when the advent of broadband was coming out in the late 90s. I'm also a signal technician with the U.S. Army, so I understand about uh, getting uh, the signal to go as far as you possibly can. But one of the biggest things that uh, when I was working for the cable company was that extra mile. You know, there was limitations on how far the equipment could transmit a signal out to rural areas. Um, and now with the advent of... Uh, of fiber optics to the home, um, that's almost limitless, almost, but except for the money part, because now the cable companies have to recoup money uh, based upon all their expenditure. So are there incentives out there for these companies to go that extra mile, even though they're not going to pass as many homes as they normally do in suburban areas? Anyone have an answer to that? Yeah. Uh, well, there are programs like mine, which are the Healthcare Connect Fund, which works with uh, healthcare providers. There are programs like E-Rate that will provide subsidies to go to schools and libraries. It's not going to get you to those true last mile out in the middle of the cornfield kind of places, but it, it can help you get closer. So there are subsidies available. Those both come from the FCC. Mm-hmm. So the FCC is actually forefronting that to go out and say, here, companies, we're going we're gonna to drop you X amount of dollars to cover, you know, 10, 15 miles outside of your, your uh, base coverage area, correct? Sure, as long as they're building to, in my case, a, a rural health care provider. A, a 65, up to 65% subsidy at this point. During the pilot program, it was an 85% subsidy. And if I could interject from from the federal perspective, um, that's the issue that that they ran into when they did give federal dollars uh, for build-out of broadband is that it went to underserved rather than unserved areas, and so it didn't get to those final miles. It went to overbuilding, and so, um, yes, I would say that there are incentives available, um, not only through the federal government, and I would like to see us do some incentives at the state level, one of the pushbacks has been from providers who don't want public dollars um, going into this, you know, making it a competition. And um, I've been pushing back on that uh, to say, well, if you're not going to do it, um, then maybe we need to look at, at these kinds of incentives and public-private partnerships and bidding these things out so that we can get that done. And I do want to clarify, under the Healthcare Connect Fund, there's always a bidding process required. We, we do have to uh, take the, the most cost-efficient providers in the areas. But, I mean, haven't we been here before? I mean, we, it, it took longer to get electricity to rural areas than it did to urban areas and probably telephone service, too. So, I mean, we've been here before. How, how were those issues handled? Mike, do you know from your history or, or well, senator 
Um, as far as uh, POTS, plain old telephone system, um, a lot of repeaters, um, analog systems, you know, they could put repeaters out there only so far, but they could build hubs in different areas and uh, get signal uh, out and back um, from those hubs to rural areas. But with in the early days of broadband, with the finite uh, limitations of signal, because the more you transmit a signal or repeat it, the more noise builds up in the system. And by the time you get out, you know, so far, it's, it's just unrecognizable. It doesn't deliver a quality signal. So, like I said, the advent of fiber to the home, which is what I, I live now in a city, Seymour, so I do have fiber to the home, um, there is still a limitation to it, but not like it was with the coax, uh, even with a hybrid fiber coax system. So now if you can get fiber all the way out um, and push it out through a hub system out, uh, in those uh, deeper rural areas, you're going to cover much more homes and get to those uh, necessary services, like you said, uh, or uh, healthcare systems and all that out there. Okay. Jennifer? Uh, so I don't know as much about the history of electricity, but um, I know a tiny bit about um, the telephone system. And when it started, there was actually a lot of like DIY-ness with it, do-it-yourself. And um, it was the technology was such that you could have pockets of rural areas that got kits and connected themselves. And they were hobbyists, and they, they worked on this, and they, they made it work for their little local communities. And then there was a lot of back and forth in terms of AT&T becoming a national company and all of this stuff, right? Um, but the problem with internet and broadband is that you can't do that because of the infrastructure that's necessary, right? Like, you can't just build a tower very easily in your backyard and, like, wire your neighborhood or wireless, you know, you can't just put a satellite up into space. So with broadband, we're talking about really complicated, expensive infrastructure that is, as we know, controlled by many different powerful groups of people. Mm -hmm. Can I address that for a moment? Yeah. Um, Number of years ago, I'm thinking more than 10 years ago, I'm trying to remember exactly, a friend of mine up in Canada, he was like two miles from the nearest connection point um, where where everything terminated at. So he bought into a satellite system that was a direct focus system, you know, a line of sight to where his shot from his farm went to a receiver, transceiver, over on a pole that linked into the cable system that he, he paid for. He paid for that shot. A little expensive on his end, but after after a while, it did pay for all his. Uh, uh, it did come out to pay for itself uh, by all the things he was able to do with it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, a two mile shot to a a, a receiver transceiver like that, uh, not everybody's gonna be able to do that from their home, uh, depending on how far they live from the nearest uh, connection point. All right, thank you, Mike. We appreciate all your uh, all your information, all your input. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. If you want to get on the program, you got. Uh, we have ten minutes to go. Eight one two eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, or one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight from anywhere outside of Bloomington, like Seymour. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Now, speaking of Twitter, I have to mention this from Eric, who tweeted uh, that South Central Indiana REMC piloted broadband through electrical wires, but not sure why it was ever completed. Has anyone heard of that? Not I'm not familiar, no. but I do know that broadband is carried over electric grids in many other places, not usually in the United States. But mm-hmm. Yeah, but as, as the senator said, if the REMCs are not legally allowed to provide mm-hmm. services, that may have had something <clears throat> to do with the, them scrapping that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, senator, I wanted to ask you, too, because I know this came up during the whole uh, Bloomington class broadband with the government getting too involved with, I know you mentioned this a little bit, but I, I just wanted to kind of go back to that, um, too involved with something that's called a utility that maybe um, could limit access from other private people. And, and in other words, being too much government between nonprofit and, and profit. Do you see a, an issue there? Well, I think that when we when we looked at this, like for instance, the Agile Network um, deal, that was, uh, and, and if I could go back to you know, going back to state regulations. So NDOT, if a broadband uh, company wants to expand, uh, NDOT currently doesn't provide an easement. So um, if they want to go over a waterway, uh, they 
can't utilize existing infrastructure. Uh, they'd have to go uh, take the expense to go under the waterway. And so adding those things add an immense amount of cost. And so one of the things in the Agile Network was that they would have access to um, those rights of way for, uh, for INDOT, for instance. And um, the concern by giving that out to one company that, that is paying for that access is that they could in turn um, charge a fee for others that wanted to access that right of way. And that would, you know, further complicate this issue and add costs to consumers and et cetera. And so um, it's a state resource, and, and certainly I, um, uh, I'm sensitive to that being a state resource. But from, from my perspective, if, if we can get those easements and access uh, at the lowest cost, you know, in other words, not requiring these extra steps to uh, the, the providers to get it done, uh, those are the kinds of things that, that, from a policy perspective, we can help with if we do it in a, in a more responsible way. Mm-hmm. So we have about uh, six or eight minutes to go in the program. And, you know, we've been talking about access, and we've been talking about the best way to utilize access. We, uh, we here at uh, WFIU, I think, cover about two dozen counties in Indiana, many of them rural. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, are there – is there um, – are there – thoughts, advice, suggestions that each of the three of you would give to, would, would, could give to our, our listeners about, you know, a next step or something that they should be looking for or demanding from their legislators or uh, um, working toward in order to gain the access and then also gain the, the knowledge or whatever for the best utilization of the access. And that's kind of a big, broad question but I'm sort of giving you the opportunity to frame it however you, you want. Jennifer, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Um, well, gosh, as you, as you speak about that, what I'm thinking about education, and I, I'd say that um, in the context of education, the most important thing would be for people to get involved. So to know that, like, yes, you should be asking for access, sure. Um, but beyond that, especially to parents that may be listening, like, you can't just expect that getting – access to laptops and, and broadband is going to help your child ex- excel, you know, by itself, that you need to be involved and that you need to um, actively look at opportunities to participate in this new world that's that's coming. I mean, it is here, not coming, it's here, right? right <laughs> These right. different ways to be creative and to work and all of those things. Okay. Allie, you got an yeah, I, I actually think that that's great. Getting involved and looking what's available, making sure your local organizations are utilizing programs that are available. Does your local doctor's office have the speeds they need? If not, can their local economic development group help? Can, can your local organizations come together? Um, and you're not going to find out what's available and you're not going to find out who is or isn't working together to make these things possible unless you go out and look for the answers yourself. So mm-hmm. just get involved. Mm-hmm. Senator, what should people be uh, talking to your colleagues about? I think that, you know, from my perspective, it would be the decision makers at local at the local level and, and, and certainly community, community members talking to those local level decision makers. We do have the Broadband Ready Communities program through Ball State University that, that local entities, and it could be a school corporation or a local government, can, can um, make sure that they have everything ready and in line for broadband deployment. And um, so far, only a few communities have taken advantage of the Broadband Ready uh, Communities um, project through Ball State University. But once we could get folks starting to, uh, and local entities starting to say, hey, we are a broadband-ready area, I think that um, I would envision uh, encouraging state lawmakers to uh, work on these, and I would envision it like the Stellar Communities Grant, um, where they could apply for uh, an award uh, that could be given for a build-out of that certain area. So you start in in a hub and work your way out. And that, those are the incentives that the caller, Mike, was, I think, kind of referring to in terms of how do we give the um, resources and get the resources where they need to go. And that would certainly be my, uh, what I would envision for how we could do this for our rural areas, but it will take local entities and community members taking those steps 
to um, participate in, in some of the things that we've already set forth. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that. We do have, I think we have a caller from the city of Bloomington. Yes. Yeah, hi, this is, uh, this is Rick Dietz. Hey, Rick. Um, I'm director for the city of Bloomington. Yeah. I understand there were some well, uh, questions. A little, well, we just had a little discussion about, uh, about the city's plan going forward, and we compared it to some issues at, at the state and uh, just wondered how the, I guess, how the bidding process went. Um, for the, um, uh, the bidding process for the for the uh, the broadband project. Oh sure, yeah. yeah so what the um, the city did is uh, released uh, an RFI, a request uh, for information. Uh, it wasn't a, a formal bidding uh, formal bidding process. We were looking for uh, potential partners that may have uh, a number of different uh, uh, business models, whether they were uh, to build um, a network. Um, whether they were to, uh, you know, for the city or build um, uh, the network for themselves and, and um, own and maintain and operate it, or some type of um, public-private you know, partnership model in between. So there wasn't um, specifically a bidding process. We were looking for um, a broad range of, of options to consider. We had, um, I think, over uh, two dozen parties that were initially uh, interested, um, expressed some interest, and we provided them some information. We uh, ultimately got 12 um, formal responses to the, um, to the RFI, uh, and then we um, narrowed that down um, incrementally to um, six that we did um, a number of um, on-site uh, interviews and discussions, um, then down to four and two and uh, and one, and then um, that resulted in the announcement that the um, mayor made um, early last month that um, uh, Axia was uh, our um, our um, desired uh, partner, and okay. we've been um, working with them to move forward the process since then. Okay, hey, that's a that's a great uh, explanation in the time we had available. <laughs> so I want to thank Perfect. you. For, thanks a lot for calling, Rick. We appreciate right, it. Thank you. That was Rick Dees with the city of Bloomington. Uh, we are out of time. I want to thank Aaron Houchin, Senator, State Senator Aaron Houchin, for being here on the phone today. And also Allie Orwig and Jennifer Terrell for being here in the studio with us. For uh, Joe Wren and producer Ryan DeBattista and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zalsberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.